Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for another mailbag where I answer your hot takes, your opinions, your observations, and ultimately your comments about tennis or anything else. Over 24 hours ago, I posted on the YouTube community tab. Got another good week of comments. I'm going to go about 30 minutes this time. I went an hour last time in last week's mailbag just because it had been a couple of weeks since I had done it, and there was uh, just an enormous amount of comments to get to, but this week I will go about 30 minutes. Of course, this will be available on all podcast platforms as well. First one is from House of Leaves. This was the top liked comment. Hey Gil, I noticed that the Shanghai Masters event is back on the ATP calendar this year. I find this quite strange as there has been no conclusion to the Peng Shui controversy. What is your opinion on it? So to be clear, the ATP, while publicly supportive of the WTA's stance, never said that they were going to withdraw their events in lockstep with the WTA. What the WTA said is, we are not going to hold events in China until there is a transparent and serious investigation into the allegations that Peng Shui made on Weibo of sexual assault against the official of the Chinese Communist Party. I believe his name was Zhang Gaoli. WTA said, until there's an investigation of her allegations, we're not going to hold events uh, in China. ATP never said that. ATP said a bunch of other stuff. We support, we, we, we stand with women's rights, blah, blah, blah. They never, they never said that they were going to withdraw. The reason why there hasn't been events in China on the ATP side in the last couple years is due to COVID-19 restrictions, nothing else. So just want to get those facts in order. And now let's talk about this entire situation once again. Let's revisit it because it's been a while. It remains very dark. There has not been any resolution. I don't think there's likely to be. Uh, in terms of what we've seen from Peng Shui, we've seen public appearance, appearances from her. Never without the presence of a CCP official. We have not seen Peng Shui alone. Ever. We have not seen her outside of China. The WTA has not been able to speak with her. Her friends on tour have not been able to contact her. Her social media no longer exists. She has done interviews, 
some of them have been with, you know, friendly media like the IOC, which was clearly participating with the Chinese government ahead of the Olympic Games in what, 2018? No, not 2018. What am I talking about? Uh, when was, anyway, I don't even remember, but was it ahead of the, which Olympics was it? Tokyo 2020? I guess it was that. Yeah, I guess it was Tokyo 2020, uh, which was held in 2021, of course. I digress. So, you know, it appears that Peng Shui is in a system of oppression at the moment. I don't know how else to describe it. Captivity? I mean, I don't know that she's in a cell. I don't want to make it sound like that, but I don't think she's free to live her life, and she's certainly not free to address or resurface any of the things she made in that social media post, which was deleted, which was deleted, scrubbed from the internet about 30 minutes after she posted it. Search terms in China, such as Peng Shui, such as tennis, such as anything related to the incident. Those search terms were banned on Chinese search engines. So there was a complete effort to wipe this away as soon as it happened. It was too late, of course. It, it made the, the rounds on, on social media and event, eventually the the virality of it on social, you know, once it transferred away from Weibo and onto platforms like Twitter and, and Facebook and WhatsApp, there was no stopping it from there. So of course it was going to get out and thank goodness it did because the celebrity of Peng Shui uh, did grow in a, in an admirable way. There was a, uh, the, the rallying around Peng Shui was something that was actually really nice to see. And the WTA took this noble stance, but it was always going to be a feeble effort uh, to actually get China to agree to the requests that were made by the WTA, which was to investigate the claims, was to investigate the sexual assault. That never was going to happen, obviously. Uh, China is not going to investigate allegations that they are not even comfortable with acknowledging the existence of. If they can't acknowledge the existence of the allegations, certainly they won't be investigating the allegations. But unfortunately, on the ATP side of things, the fact that they have not backed up the WTA's response uh, really weakens the position of the WTA. And frankly, I don't know if the ATP and the WTA together are actually strong enough to pressure China into changing what would their what would be their uh typically uh, oppressive way of handling a sexual assault allegation against one of their high-ranking officials, right? I don't know if the ATP and the WTA together would be strong enough to actually make an imprint on China's actions, but certainly the WTA alone, not even close, not even close. It becomes so easy to be, oh, women's tennis doesn't want to be here. Okay, well, we got men's tennis, so there's that. Uh, I think we'll live. So it's uh, it's really tough. Uh, it's it's tough for me to 
to say much, uh, to give much of of, of a take. I, I wish the ATP, which is in far better a, a far better financial situation than the WTA, they are in a much easier position here than the WTA is because for the WTA they are a a less profitable organization as it is compared to the ATP. Uh, but that said, a much larger percentage of their revenue was coming from the Chinese marketplace. So you have a pie and I'm, I'm not, these might not be proportional numbers, but let's say the WTA has $5 and the ATP has $8. Well, two out of the WTA's $5 was China. Only one out of the ATP's $8 was China. WTA is willing to sacrifice two out of their $5. And the ATP can't sacrifice one out of its $8. Understand what I'm trying to say here? It wouldn't have been that hard for the ATP uh, to, to, to stand behind the WTA. And I feel like they should have done it. That's really my opinion on this. I think they should have done it. Uh, there are going to be issues in the future. I am certain of that. I am not completely up on my international affairs, so I don't want to get in depth on it. And I don't want to get specifics because I'm afraid that I will make errors because I'm not uh, informed enough on it. But I, I do believe that with some of the uh, territorial disputes that are happening right now. I don't know that that involve China. I will say, I believe those will will at some point reach a point where there are going to be some international ripple effects similar to what we have seen with Russia. I hope I'm wrong. By the way, I hope I'm wrong. But, you know, we have seen the ATP, of course, withdraw its events from Russia. And I, I suspect that there's a chance that within the next 20 years, the same thing could happen with China. So I, I feel like it wouldn't have been that big a leap for the ATP to actually stand behind its sister tour on this occasion. Uh, I, I'm, I was a little bit disappointed at the time that they didn't do it. All right. That's my opinion on it. Let's go to the next one. I think every comment from now on is going to be a whole lot simpler than that one in terms of answering it. From YouTube user 1234, who's a member. Thank you, YouTube user. You mentioned last week a desire for tennis to be as popular as possible. What do you think is the plausible ceiling for popularity in the U.S.? and internationally to the best of your knowledge? And what do you think is being done and by who to help or hinder tennis reaching that ceiling? Well, actually, this is quite complicated. Yeah, this, so maybe I was wrong. It's all going to be complicated uh, questions that I'm having to answer today, uh, apparently. I talked about wanting tennis to be as popular as possible in last week's mailbag because somebody asked me, hey, Gil, do you care when the Americans play about them winning or losing? And the answer was, not really. I don't care in the short run on a match-by-match -match basis, but I, I would like to see tennis as popular as possible in the United States, and it does help to have players competing for really, really big events. Um, 
So that's the reference here. What's the ceiling popularity? I mean, as much as I want to dream big, I've accepted tennis as a niche sport in in the American market. You know, I, I have fully accepted that. There is no... It's it's a pretty steep hill that you're trying to climb, uh, a cultural hill that you're trying to climb to change tennis's status as a niche sport in the United States. When you have, again, I mean, sports is, is religion. Sports is culture. And football and basketball and baseball, to a lesser extent hockey, these sports are in the fabric of American culture. So for tennis to resonate on that level, uh, realistically, I, I don't think about that. I, I don't think of that as something as, as being in the cards. But I, I think it can can grow from, from where it's at right now. And, and be optimized in many, many, many ways. So the next part of the question is, what do you think is being done and by who to help or hinder tennis reaching that ceiling? What is being done? Well, the tours are certainly going to make efforts to market their products in, in the American market. Now they are, they have to balance out where they are focusing their revenue, their marketing revenue and, and their efforts. And a, a lot of their stuff, of course, is not catered necessarily to American audiences, but just to everybody. And and hopefully they get the rub from a big market like the United States. And I, I also don't think that this answer needs to just be about the U.S. I think whatever I say here can apply to any country where, where tennis is secondary in the world. But uh, I think, first of all, there's grassroots efforts to make uh, playing tennis more accessible. So I think that's the first thing. Public courts, uh, making tennis cheap, uh, bringing tennis to urban populations, making sure that rackets and you know equipment is available. So first getting people to play tennis, I think uh, culturally a popular tennis video game would be enormous. A popular docu-series. I don't know that we're going to get that in Breakpoint. Uh, that can make a big difference as F1 saw. Uh, a transcendent celebrity of a player. I don't know that there has been a, a celebrity tennis player in the U.S. to the extent that John McEnroe and Jimmy Connors were uh, since those two. Agassi, maybe Agassi. Uh, someone who breaks through culturally, uh, Serena did, actually. So I don't know if that's it because Serena did. You know, as I was going through it, I was going through the generations here. Uh, you know, I went, I went Connors, and then I went McEnroe, and then I went Agassi, and then I arrived at the 2000s, and there was Serena. There was. So, I don't know. 
Is that like a white flaggy answer? Can I go on and on about little things that I think could grow the sport and help the sport? You know, storytelling and stuff like that. You know, accessibility, the way tennis is is brought to fans in the United States. By the way, big news today that I'm happy about. Tennis Channel, NT2, uh, will be made available on YouTube TV starting uh, July 1st. July 1st? Was it July 1st? Hold on, let me fact check that. Anyway, I mean, that's big. You know, just giving, giving more people the ability to watch Tennis Channel, right? That, today was a nice little victory. June 1st. Is that what I said? Did I say June 1st? Anyway, I'm going to go to the next comment. Uh, another one here from Bethman. Hi, Gil. I love the content. Thank you. I wanted to talk about the backlash from fans and media that the next generation players might face after Djokovic and Nadal retire. For example, many tennis fans are eager to say that there is an asterisk on many of Alcaraz's achievements because Djokovic did not play. If he played, anything could happen and nothing is guaranteed. But would this behavior continue for, say, the next 10 to 15 years? And not just for Alcaraz, but for any future star in that they would have... have uh, they would not have achieved what they have achieved if they played the big three, etc. And are expectations for the upcoming players too high because of what they we've seen already from the big three? So yes and no. First of all, the immediate discreditation of Alcaraz's year-end number one or Alcaraz's U.S. Open title in 2022. Those things you're not going to continue to see for the next 10, 15 years. Those things in large part are directly related to an understandable resentment of not just the fact that Djokovic wasn't playing, but why he wasn't playing. So while I don't think it's fair to take credit away from Carlos Alcaraz for beating the players who are in front of him and Djokovic... Djokovic, irrespective, achieving remarkable things at 19 years old uh, and just having a, a pantheon tennis season for a teenager. Pantheon. Well, I don't think it's fair to just bring up Novak as a means of discrediting anything he did at all. Uh, I do think that what you're seeing there is completely temporary and completely ex extraordinary. I don't want to say extraordinary. I want to I want to actually say like meaning not normal. Okay, I, I mean extraordinary in the uh, dictionary definition uh, sense of the word. Where for for ten fifteen years we're never going to see circumstances like we've seen in the last couple of years where we have such a politically charged and tennis independent factor. Stopping a player from being able to enter in events. So that's the good news. That's the part where I'm saying, don't worry, Bethman. Don't worry. None of what Al Alcaraz does is going to be discounted or discredited over the next 10, 15 years. What will happen is from a legacy standpoint, if he starts to nudge up against big three accomplishments and whoever, whichever the next player is to nudge up against big three accomplishments, and by the way, it's going to happen. 
That was something I said on a mailbag a couple of weeks ago. No, not a couple of weeks, a couple of months ago that ended up getting uh, aggregated. I saw it on a couple of Twitter accounts and I saw it on sports Kita and stuff like that. Like Gil Gross says that the big three records are going to be broken. At the time that I said that, I did not know that anybody was going to take that as a bold statement or some kind of big deal. But the aggregators were, were actually right to aggregate it because it did draw quite the reaction. There were a lot of people who disagreed with me, some people who agreed with me. Uh, but I fully stand by what I said that what the big three accomplished is uh, besides for, look, there are some, you could cherry pick some of the things that they've done and claim that we might go 50 to a hundred years without it being broken, such as Nadal's 14 RG titles. But for the most part, I think all these records uh, will be going down. When that happens, there will be there will be comparisons. There will be discrediting. There will be, well, it was harder back then. Well, they were actually better players. The reason I know for a fact that that's going to happen is because I've seen it happen already in all of these other sports that I follow. And I know the same thing will happen. Biggest one is basketball. Biggest one is when a guy like LeBron James comes up against Michael Jordan's accomplishments. It's, well, basketball was actually tougher in the 90s because of the rules, because of hand checking and less technical fouls. And it was physical, more physical. And the centers protected the rims better. And the, the league was stronger. There were better players. Yeah, that argument is out there because everybody thinks that their era was the best. Everybody ends up thinking that they're wrong. They're always wrong. Sports evolve. Sports move forward. Sports don't move in the opposite direction. Maybe you disagree. Maybe. I, I don't want to get into supporting uh, my argument, I can, I can go sport to sport, explain to you why, uh, why it got better in terms of the performance of the athletes. Uh, but you know, that's just how it is. Uh, is that a bad thing? No, I'll probably, if I'm still on YouTube, I'll probably say when, when it happens that no, you know, this player, so-and-so is actually better than Djokovic, better than Nadal, better than Federer. That's probably what I'll say on, on YouTube. If, if this show is still going on. But not everyone's going to agree with me. In fact, a lot of people won't because they will have a romantic idea of how amazing uh, the Big Three era was, which is okay. You should be romantic about the Big Three era. I sure am. I'm sure romantic about it. But I, I also need to stay true to my principles and what I believe about about sports and you know I've already I've already seen the game evolving you know I already see it so I'm never going to discredit someone in the future for taking down uh the achievements that I think that they'll take down 
Next one is from Gil Gross's daddy. Okay. There we go. Uh, what is your fate? Uh, thank you for being a member. I don't think I've ever seen a, a username that is customized to this channel. So that is a first. What is your favorite Masters event? Least favorite if you have one. Do you feel that winning any particular Masters event is more important or holds more weight for you in terms of how significant the win was? For example, Rome is the most important tune-up for the French or Cincinnati for the U.S. Open. I don't really think that I have a most important Masters event. I wouldn't want to bring that subjectivity into how I treat a player for winning a Masters title. So I might have a Masters event that I would most like to attend. Rome, Monte Carlo. Those are at the top for me. Probably Rome, number one, because I want to go back to Rome, the city. But... In terms of the tennis club itself, if you can tell me that I get to hit on the grounds before or after the event, then I'll go with Monte Carlo. But uh, that is separate from the, the prestige factor. So first of all, I have favorite Masters 1000 events in, in terms of I like to look at them. I'd like to attend them. Uh, I enjoy them because I do go to them often like Indian Wells or Miami. Then I have, well, I think that these are important in terms of what it tells me about the state of the tour or about who is going to win uh, the upcoming major. In that way, I believe Rome is more important than Madrid. Who's going to win Roland Garros? Well, I think... Rome is a much better indication of that because the conditions are different in Madrid. So those things exist. My biases about which ones are most important or which ones tell me which things. But as far as the achievement of winning a Masters 1000 tournament is, I don't think it's fair to put a different amount of weight on each and every one. Uh, because at the end of the day, the fields are loaded. The players, you know, the prize money is high. The stadiums are big. And the importance is ramped up. And if you win one of these events, you should get your flowers. The only one that I probably do take a little bit of credit away from is Paris Bercy because I think unlike the others where a lot of players are juiced up hungry wanting to do well they care a lot about it I just don't think that's the case in Paris I think there's a lot of differing uh, differentiation in the players mental states when it comes to the motivation some players I'm sure are are young Hungry, they might be on a tear. They might be kind of new on tour. They might be French. And they have a very high level of, of motivation. It, it might be their, their best chance. They're in the quarters. They're in the semis. It's their best chance to do well at a 1,000. Uh, they might be super amped up to play 
Paris Bercy, but do I think that all the entire field is amped up to play Paris Bercy as much as they are all the rest of them? I'm not convinced of that because it's at the end of the year. There's no major. And a lot of guys are beat, done, ready for the offseason. Next one is from Clouster. Hey Gil, with Francis Tiafo finally ending his drought, winning his second title, and knocking on the door of the top 10, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on what he needs to do to reach that next level. Do you think him winning his first clay title will help with his confidence going into the rest of the clay season, where his results have been historically weak, or was Houston just an easy draw? Personally, I would love to see Foe reach top 10 level week in and week out because compared to his compatriots, his electric play style and personality hold a lot of superstar potential if the results are there and that, that his success could be a great thing for American tennis as a whole. Thanks as always for all the great insights you provide us tennis fans. Thank you. That's very kind of you to say. I agree with what you're saying about Tiafo's superstar potential. If you're going to say that Tommy Paul, Taylor Fritz, and Francis Tiafo throw Sebastian Corda, Jensen Brooksby, uh, Brandon Nakashima in there, uh, if you're going to say all of those guys could become top five players who win three majors in their careers, which one can be the biggest deal, could have the biggest mainstream punch, I would say Francis for all of the points that you outlined. So I agree with that overall sentiment. What's the question here? Um, do you think him winning? I don't make much of the Houston title, honestly. He's just a better player than most of those guys. Let, let's, let me refresh myself on his path. Uh, that's not a great field. It was a, a good job by him maintaining his focus in very difficult circumstances in terms of how much it rained in Houston. But he beat Steve Johnson, Jason Kubler, Heis Brower, or sorry, Heis Brower, and Tomas Martin Echeverry. And he crushed almost everybody. Echeverry forced Tiafo to two tie breaks, but other than that, it was quite easy. And then it was a couple of six fours against Kubler. Look. Tiafo comes in, the number one seed. He's the best player by far. He should win the title. At least he went and did it. At least he didn't pull like a Maria Sakari in Rabat, where like she enters a 250, has only you know one title in her career. It came in 2018 and ends up losing to Mayor Sharif in the final. That happened last year. So at least that didn't happen. Uh, but yeah, Tiafo's last title was 2018, just like Sakari uh, in Delray Beach. And, and it had been a while. But look, players, you know, the thing is, Tiafo reached another level starting at the U.S. Open last year. And it appears that level was not a flash in the pan, was not a one event thing. So I wouldn't hold Francis accountable for his inability to win a title you know, 2019 through the first half of 2022, it's not about holding him accountable or not holding him accountable. You know, that he just wasn't at that level. 
Now he's at that level. So when somebody a couple of weeks ago uh, gave me a, a comment and included the fact that Tiafo hasn't won a title since 2018, I brushed it off because I just knew like, yeah, at this point, the way Tiafo is playing, he's going to win a title. He's going to win a title soon. So I, I didn't make anything of his title drought. When a player is really, really good for a long time and doesn't win a title, that's strange. But Tiafo actually, it wasn't an example of that. It, it wasn't. It was that, you know, he, he wasn't there. Then he was there. Now he's won a title. But the Houston thing doesn't show me much. Um, look, I don't think I've nailed down Tiafo's place in the top 15 of men's tennis. When I say that, I mean that I think I have a lot of learning to do about how good this improved version of Francis Tiafo can be and will be and what will his pitfalls be. And when I say improved version of Tiafo, I'm I'm talking about a Tiafo uh, who hits the first serve really really big, you know, 130 regularly. A Tiafo who focuses every single point, doesn't go away for 5-10 minutes in every single match. A Tiafo that has maximized his uh, physical endurance, a Tiafo that has fixed the forehand return and made the forehand more consistent as a whole. You know, all of those improvements that have helped him uh, reach the top 15 level. But as far as, okay, what's next for him, I'm still trying to figure that out. Uh, I think that sometimes he doesn't get enough returns in play. He has a very aggressive return strategy. I'm not sold on the shot tolerance. I'm not sold on the pace generation on the backhand, the ability for that backhand uh, to defend on the run. And on clay, I'm not so sure about his movement. So that's my overall overview of Francis Tiafo. From Adam, Gil, please, please, can you give us some analysis on Alexander Bublik's game and why he's struggling so much this season? So uh, I wanted to, to certainly respond to this comment. Uh, because I, I believe, unless it's somebody else, I think that, that I've fielded or I've seen quite a bit of your comments asking me to talk about Bublik. And what I can't offer you is a very uh, in-depth analysis of Alexander Bublik's game that, that I, you know, think would really add a lot to this conversation. What I can tell you is I've always had trouble caring a lot about being analytical with, with Alexander Bublik and his game because I don't know how much he cares. And it's tough for me to care a lot about a player who doesn't care a lot. Meaning, why should I care more about Alexander Bublik than Alexander Bublik cares about Alexander Bublik? A player who is not interested in being a top player and making the sacrifices and the changes required to be a top player, why should I be interested in what that player can do to improve himself? Look, Bublik is a guy who has lost early a lot this year. I've watched him a little, but not all that much. Um, so I don't have any takes. Again, I don't have any any analysis for you that that I think is going to be helpful and is going to explain why he is struggling so much this season. But 
I will tell you that I have trouble for the reason I just outlined, getting super invested or engaged in Alexander Bublik's tennis career. And by the way, I like him. I like Bublik the guy. I really do. But that doesn't mean that I like analyzing his tennis, which I don't. Doesn't mean I won't, but he's got to give me a reason to. From Sports Fanatic. Thoughts on using Hawkeye on clay. I know they want to be fully accurate, which Hawkeye has some margin for error. But when they're arguing over which mark is the correct mark, it looks ridiculous. And I question if they're just guessing at that point. Unfortunately, Sports Fanatic, using Hawkeye on clay is not a solution to the problem that you are describing. Because if Hawkeye were to be introduced on clay, what would happen would be the players would still be looking at the mark and arguing that it does not correspond with what they are seeing in the Hawkeye review. You throw in the fact that Hawkeye is less effective on clay. That is to say that the margin of error is wider on clay, so much so that it is not approved by the powers that be, the sanctioning powers that be for usage on clay. Uh, but if you take that into account, and then you combine the fact that when you are playing on clay, you have a physical representation of evidence on the court of where the ball landed, well, players are going to go absolutely berserk if that physical evidence does not correspond with what the computer is saying. So the whole looking at the court and circling the mark and arguing about the mark and going to the umpire and saying, how do you see that mark is out? I see it as in. Hawkeye is simply not a solution to that problem. I know I said I'd go 30 minutes, but let's do 10 more. Let's do a round number because I've answered eight questions. Let's get to 10. From... Mr. or Mrs. Lima. Vinclus? That's why I went with Lima. Is it just me or are the first couple days of a of single week Masters 1000s, Monday through Thursday, the more interesting days since you have dozens of high quality matches between top 30 players happening nonstop as opposed to the final weekend where you frequently get predictable matchups between one elite and a non-elite player. I always find myself more intrigued through this first portion of the week to see how the draw starts to, starts to turn out uh, and the interesting matchups that are formed as well as possible upsets. Love the content. Thanks. Uh, yeah, one week Masters 1000s, and you're talking about the 64-player format, uh, 64 no-buys. Those uh, first couple days are absolutely electric. Yeah, I don't have much to add. In the other version of the Masters 1000 tournaments, it's uh, not quite as fun. The first couple days, because you have 32 buys. So yeah, um, I agree with that. I would hope that at the end of tournaments, you get elite versus elite. Uh, versus elite versus non-elite. So that's the only part that I would... Maybe uh, tweak. Next one is from member Pedro. Do you think Monte Carlo should be scheduled more than a week after the conclusion of the Sunshine Double? 
It is very unfortunate to see a Masters event with this many withdrawals, even if some of the top players really are injured. Additionally, do you think that it is truly necessary for the ATP to designate mandatory and non-mandatory Masters 1000 events? From a fan perspective, it is pretty confusing and seems somewhat pointless. Well, to your point, I don't really understand. I don't fully understand the point of designating designating Monte Carlo as a non-mandatory Masters 1000. That said, it is the only non-mandatory Masters 1000, so I don't think it's too complicated to keep track of. If if it were like I don't know, four of the Masters were mandatory and then three of them were non-mandatory. I think something like that or sorry, uh Another five of them were non-mandatory because there are nine. Uh, that would get pretty unnecessarily confusing and taxing. Uh, but because it's just simple with the Monte Carlo, uh, it doesn't bother me all that much. That said, I don't fully understand it. Other than Monte Carlo being at the beginning of a transition to hard court and clay and, you know, the the clay court season being something that is is really the beginning of uh, probably the most brutal stretch on the calendar for tour players. Uh, the next b true break in the calendar doesn't come till Wimbledon. Uh, I don't think that most players will take three weeks off until after Wimbledon, at which point I think most of the top players will take three weeks off. What's the first part? Should it be scheduled more than a week? Oh, basically, should Monte Carlo be moved? At this point, and this is uh, a byproduct of the two-week Masters, if you are making Rome two weeks and also Madrid two weeks, you have completely taken away all of the room for tinkering in your schedule with your other premium products. There is no longer any wiggle room there. So the answer to the first part of the question is no, it's not really possible. Monte Carlo needs to be when Monte Carlo is. What could be done is you could kind of move everything over. You could make Indian Wells a little bit earlier, which personally I would, I would appreciate in the U S Indian Wells and Miami uh, go up against March Madness in a way that that is maybe not so ideal. I don't know. I guess that couldn't be avoided in its entirety. Uh, but I think you could move up Mon Monte Carlo because I, I don't, you know, there's some space in February to maybe be played with. But other than that, uh, I don't think it's happening. And as far as uh, super important calendar reform is concerned, I, I wouldn't put this at the top of the list. All right, that is all I have time for. Uh, obviously, as always, some excellent questions, unfortunately, had to be left on the back burner. Uh, but you can be sure to try to ask it again. In fact, I do believe that for next week's mailbag, I'm going to be doing something a little bit different with uh, Apple Podcasts. So, uh I don't know why I'm teasing that right now, but I am I am going to create a way. 
on the next mailbag to basically guarantee that I answer your comment. All right, that's your tease. Uh, I'm going to do a post-match tomorrow on Medvedev versus Zverev. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time.